I used to call this talk the flying saucer problem. I've changed the title to uh, UFOs, Man's Cosmic <coughs> Test, and there's quite a good reason for that. When one starts on studying a subject of this sort, one tends to regard it as a problem. And say that all sorts of things which one cannot explain, all sorts of undiscovered aspects, all sorts of things that are apparently irreconcilable, it's a mystery. However, when one gets deeper into it, one realises that what is a problem seen from a fairly elementary viewpoint becomes a sort of test or a step on the path when seen from a physical, uh, spiritual viewpoint. And that's why I put in the write-up for this talk, because Stephen would have mentioned this too, the, the idea of the, the, the koan, the Buddhist, Zen Buddhist idea, K-O-A-N, that is a riddle that cannot be solved, which is deliberately thrown out by Zen Buddhist masters, like how do you clap with one hand, a thing that is inherently impossible and sets you thinking, and it destroys all your conventional thought forms. And UFOs, I think, are a sort of gigantic planetary cone, or interplanetary, perhaps. I will start, though, by giving you a, a brief history of the subject, because well, how many people, put your hand up, those people who already know, say, uh, the basic facts on this subject, sort of, uh, who could stand up and talk for half an hour on the subject without too much problem. Uh, well, who could, at, <laughs> who could at least carry on a, an after-dinner conversation on the subject? Um, yes, okay. So, most of you then don't really even know the, uh, not that you should be expected to know on this day, bizarre subject, the, the, the basic facts. Um, is that correct then? That is to say, I do need to spend a few minutes at any rate on that. The subject started, and I think I can say this is not an exaggeration, nor is it over-literalistic. Say the subject started on June the 24th, 1947. That is when it first came into the public eye. A man called Kenneth Arnold was flying over Mount Rainier in Washington State. I've been, incidentally, halfway up that mountain. There's a half that you can drive up. There's the half that I've been up. It's 14,000 feet high. And he was doing a, a flying businessman, as they have in the United States, uh, and he was doing a search for a, a lost plane. And he saw a sudden gleam of light that came into his cockpit, and then he lost it. And then there it was again, a sudden flash of light, and this time he pinpointed it, and it came from the reflection of the sun from nine gleaming metallic disc-shaped craft. Actually, eight of them were disc-shaped, but the ninth was a peculiar um, shape, which is very difficult to describe, uh, a sort of swept-wing shape going back. And he landed. He was a very well-respected man. I think he was a local sheriff or law officer of some sort. He was very much a prominent man in his local town, which is Seattle, which is quite a big city, which I've been to. And he said they were like saucers skipping over water, as if you played ducks and drakes with saucers or flat stones. And they were skipping over water. They did this sort of undulating movement like that. And the name Flying Saucers stuck. It's often said to be unfortunate that that name was invented. In fact, it's a remarkably precise description of them. Uh, it's not a misnomer, I don't think. They do fly, and they are, on the whole, mostly like a double saucer shape. That is, two saucers put on top of the other, one upside down. Uh, that is the most common, the discoid shape. 
The later name that was applied to them, UFOs, is a slightly more respectable name, but it's a much more blanket and much more vague name because it also includes a whole range of other phenomena. Everything from sort of fireballs in the sky to meteorites, anything that's unidentified in the sky, you can call a UFO. But the flying saucers is a far more precise term. It indicates that what you have seen, you believe to be a craft, a clearly solid craft of a saucer shape. And so I prefer the original term, though it is not a not one that is liked by people who want to be respectable or maintain an academic status if they write books about it. Anyway, to cut a long story short, this story went round the United States and round the world. There were a great many other sightings. I'll just pick one or two out. Two pilots, Charles and Whithead, flying um, an American airliner, suddenly nearly collided with an um, or well, maybe it was a bomb B-52, suddenly nearly collided with this enormous great cigar-shaped thing with glowing windows in the dusk or darkness which suddenly approached, came straight at them, swerved just to avoid them. They saw the windows lit up. There were no wings. It went just past them, below them, and disappeared. This sort of near collision happened many times, and this, for this reason, the phenomenon was considered to be a danger and was considered classified information by the American Air Force. There were a number of um, committees and projects which worked on this. One was called Project Sign, then Project Grudge, which fairly aptly describes their attitude, and finally it was changed to Project Blue Book, which went on until 1969. It has now been leaked out because since 1978, <coughs> the CIA, the American Central Intelligence Agency, has had to release documents under the American Freedom of Information Act unless they can prove that it is in the American official interest of the American state not to release them, which is the opposite of the position in Britain where you have to prove that it's in the interest to release it. In America, you've got to prove that it's in, in the state's interest to keep it secret now. This is following Watergate, all this legislation went through. So it is now, uh, documents have now been released showing that the original estimate by the official American Air Force panels was that they were interplanetary spacecraft. This estimate continued to be produced by committees sitting on the subject and eventually the CIA uh, said in one of the meetings that although this seemed to be the conclusion, they would have to keep this secret. They would have to literally deceive the public. In fact, they started a campaign in 1953 to debunk the whole saucer phenomenon. That is to say, to pass it off to the public as something that was of no consequence. This happened again in 1965-69 when a committee called the Condon Committee which was led by a distinguished physicist at the University of Colorado and spent half a million dollars on investigating this subject produced an enormous report which I've got about a thousand pages long in which 30% of the cases were classified as unknowns or extraordinary aerial objects and yet in the preamble to the report because they knew the journalists wouldn't read the whole thing they only had they were deliberately only given half a day before to look at it before the, before the whole thing was released. Um, and in the preamble it says it's of no scientific interest and uh, th there's nothing to indicate they're extraterrestrial and, and that there's no defence threat to the United States and so on. 
So this attitude of deliberately bamboozling the public has gone on in the United States from, well, right from the beginning until the present day and is still continuing, but it has been exposed now, most particularly in a new book that's only been out for a few months, called Clear Intent, the Government Cover-Up of the UFO Evidence, published by one of the major publishers in the United States, which has already caused a very great stir in America, and which presents for the first time systematically in any book a complete, I've got the book incidentally, a complete presentation of all the documents that have been released by the CIA over the years admitting their estimates that they were interplanetary craft. The um, title, Clear Intent, incidentally, doesn't actually refer to the CIA, though you could say they had a clear intent to deceive. It refers to the behaviour of the UFOs, because in several of the assessments of their <coughs> performance, it was stated that they had, they showed clear intent in their behaviour. That is to say, they were intelligently controlled. Clear intent to reconnoiter the Earth, to inspect nuclear power stations, to follow aircraft, to hover over airfields, to hover over the Houston space base, uh, which they did systematically, and sometimes they were seen going around rockets that were going up at up to 25,000 miles an hour, and these UFOs are going around them as they ascended. Uh, this has leaked out of Houston. Several, it is now known, and there's very little doubt about it, though this may astound you, that several UFOs crashed in the early years of the phenomenon and are now in secret hangars in the possession of the American government. It is also quite possible that at least one is in the possession of the British government, though that is at the moment a matter of controversy. There was one that crashed uh, supposedly on Heligoland Island in 1948 at the time when that was in the British zone of occupation of Western Germany. What happened to it, or whether it definitely existed, nobody knows, but a British cabinet minister in 1954 made a reference of a very enigmatic nature to it nature to it and then after that nothing was said. There was another one that landed on Spitsbergen Island in 1952 and was taken possession of by the Norwegian government which owns that island. An Air Force uh, investigation conducted by <coughs> certain Colonel Darnville of the Norwegian Air Force was undertaken and came out with a report that it definitely was not of this earth and contained metal for example of a sort that was not known on this earth. Then he said that before anything further was said, this report came out three years later in 1955, they would have to consult their British and American allies, and after that nothing has been heard at all on the subject. There are also rumours of things in Russia, which is impossible to know whether to prove or disprove, um, but I know one or two people in the UFO field who have contacts in the East Europe and Russia, and they say that the phenomenon is being studied with urgency by the Russian government and has been for a number of years. Um, it is also said that in 1967, a Russian missile base fired a salvo missile at the squadron of UFOs. The missiles were exploded as if they'd suddenly hit an invisible force field before they reached the UFOs. The second salvo was fired with the same result. Before they could fire a third salvo, the whole electrics of the missile station were paralysed, not a single electric light or wire would work. Um, and from this, it seems that they have the power to stop missiles being fired, which might be an encouraging thought if we're thinking in terms of possibly possible nuclear war. If the beings observing us 
perhaps um, if they are around this plant would have an interest in not getting blown to pieces themselves in any UK well they might well stop nuclear missiles being fired. There are all sorts of leaks that have come out that certain nuclear tests in the atmosphere at the time when they were still being done failed for mysterious reasons and there was a UFO in the vicinity at the time when that happened. There are other uh, reports that some nuclear tests that did go off in the atmosphere were estimated to produce a certain amount of very high radioactivity and for some mysterious reason that much radioactivity never was in fact released and UFOs were seen in the area at the time as if they were in some way soaking up or nullifying radiation which is another interesting rather nice thought as well. Now I think um, I could go on for a long time about the evidence for these things. Um, I really want to get on to the spiritual significance of them. Is there anyone who would like me to I mean, is there anyone who feels completely unconvinced who would like more evidence? I mean, I could spend a whole day just on the evidence. Um, is there anyone who, who would like me to go through further lists of sightings and things? Because I'm willing to, if, if you want me to. Would you just say when the first ones were seen over the UK, please? first ones were seen over the UK, I suppose you could say, uh, way back um, in the Middle Ages, but those sort of ones are rather controversial. Um, I suppose the first definite ones were seen in the early 50s. This is when the phenomenon first became known in England. Um, there were one or two quite celebrated ones. There was one that was drawn by the Norwich Astro uh, um, Astronomical Laboratory, uh, which had three globes under it and looked exactly like Adamski's photo of a saucer that he had taken 5,000 miles away in California a year before. Looked almost identical. Another one that again looked identical was taken by two boys at Coniston in Derbyshire. In their panic, they didn't extend the bell over the camera fully, so it was a bit blurred. Suffice it to say, in summing up this section of my talk then, I've studied the subject on and off since 1965. I've gone more deeply into this than into any of the other subjects that we cover in Wessex, and it's been my special interest, and it's the one from which my interest in the others branched out. I've met a number of the people who've been researching into it, several of them, who say semi in confidence to me, but as long as I don't give you their names, it doesn't matter, that they are in contact with Air Force and high up government people who know that this phenomenon exists, but will not let on about it. I think the reason why they won't is that it's regarded as a defence secret. That is to say, these craft have fantastic performance. They've been clocked at over 80,000 miles an hour. Um, they also almost certainly have bases on the moon. Uh, things have been seen on the moon by astronauts and by astronomers. Um, I've got several books just on that aspect. Um, and if it, all the information on them were released, this revolutionary form of propulsion that they have, which makes them weightless, it completely defies the force of gravity, um, incidentally. They hover with no apparent power. They do right-angle turns at up to 80,000 miles an hour, and that would flatten anyone inside if they were not weightless. They have some means of making themselves weightless. Either that or they are themselves semi-etheric beings and therefore have no weight naturally. If they, if they are, they are capable of making themselves solid because sometimes when they've landed on the ground they've left marks and on one occasion when they landed on a railway line it was estimated later that the indentations on the sleepers would have required a weight of 30 tonnes to, to, to make that much indentation. Uh, so anyone who knows of the mysterious circles in the 
in the wheat near Warminster and near Winchester that have come up in the last few years, for example. Um, I've got photos, I've got a whole file of newspaper cuttings that you can go through afterwards, including a photo of that. Um, and uh, <coughs> anybody who knows that knows that they are solid or can become solid. Whether they are in their natural state in our frequency of matter is another matter, is another thing. I mean, they may be normally of an etheric nature, but if so, they can become solid as and when they wish. Another possibility is that a lot of them are normally solid in our frequency of matter and normally would be touchable and visible by us, but that they are able to dissolve their atoms where they are on their planets and come in the form of energy to this planet and reassemble them at the other end in Star Trek fashion. So um, then they could still be solid. It's what in psychic research is called teleportation. It's actually quite a well-researched phenomenon. It's called apports by spiritualists, as they call it, this materialization of matter. It, it's a known, a, a well-proven phenomenon. Professor Hasted, for example, who has lectured to us on metal bending and will do so again shortly at Branson School, uh, says he's 13 times witnessed this phenomenon of, of things just appearing and disappearing in his own laboratory, and he's a professor of physics at London University. Uh, yes, the um, Philadelphia experiment was a supposed case where the American Navy dematerialized a destroyer and reassembled it 200 miles away in Norfolk Navy Yard in 1943. I can't say, because I haven't read the book, whether I believe that. I've read a, a short account of it. I think it's quite possible. They, they were said to be experimenting in Einstein's unified field theory which they're coming close to solving according to Horizon now. Maybe they got somewhere near it but didn't solve it completely because the, the crew of the ship were in a terrible state following it and had the embarrassing circumstance that they sort of dematerialized suddenly without warning in front of people and things like that, if you believe the story, which you probably don't. <laughs> anyway, suffice it to say that after my study of this subject, I have no doubt, and really very few people who study this subject seriously and with an open mind, rather than with any, um, any sort of ulterior motive, very few people who are completely open and looking for the truth on this have any doubt about the reality of the phenomenon. There are people who pass themselves over as being objective, but really have some particular course to flog. That is to say, they either want to prove that they're good sceptical scientists and therefore they can't accept any of this stuff, uh, and therefore they have a, um, a motive for, for wanting to reject it because it's connected with their own respectability and status amongst their peers. Or there are people who, who belong to a particular cult, which I could, could name several, but I won't, uh, which has a particular esoteric belief and wants to harness the UFOs to that, and therefore they get completely out of balance. They're usually members of some of the esoteric societies and groups. They try and, 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 and latch UFOs onto that and fit it into that. And that usually produces an unbalanced viewpoint. But the people who are completely open on this and study it without an ulterior motive usually come to the, roughly the following, and I'll just summarize it now before I go on to the spiritual significance. That they're coming from other planets, that some may be from the etheric around this planet as well, 
and they may be therefore beings who have reached a higher degree of evolution but still attached to the earth but probably the majority come from other planets their behaviour suggests this and when you see the slides you will see why I say this their humanoid appearance is not human it's humanoid that is to say though they have two arms and two legs they do have very non-human features including a bulbous head with very developed brain areas which you would expect from beings of a higher degree of evolution um, they have great telepathic powers they don't normally speak our language they, they communicate by tele telepathy to those who, who meet them sometimes they can't be sometimes they speak in a strange whistling language or other type of language to each other and can't be understood they're very standoffish when they land they usually land in remote areas and don't want to be contacted and if people do come near them they often produce a little um, thing from their belt which is a, a sort of stick about that long and they point it at the person which immobilizes that person it doesn't paralyze them it wouldn't be quite accurate because otherwise they'd fall down flat it immobilizes them so that they can stand up but they can't actually move for about 20 minutes <laughs> they don't come to any harm you'll be glad to hear they seem to be um, really not on the whole hostile some of them seem to be <coughs> indifferent some of them are seen doing things like taking soil samples projecting um, tubes into the water reservoirs as if they're taking out supplies of water or even onto uh, uh, electrical lines, cable lines as if they're taking electricity or perhaps more sinister <laughs> putting something into the water so that's somebody's idea but I rather doubt that and they I'll just run through some of the things about their behaviour they're metallic they shine like silver they have a frequently have a sort of rocking falling leaf motion they do miraculous manoeuvres right angle turns they sometimes seem to do sort of dog fights with each other this may be connected with their force fields they glow with a force field around them which usually turns red when they're travelling fast and is white when they're hovering which is very interesting considering that the chariots of fire mentioned in the Bible which are not actually called uh, there are various phenomena in the Bible which are referred to as chariots of fire when travelling fast and yet the Bible refers to, to other objects which are glowing um, like a cloud when they're, they're stationary if you read um, books like Ezekiel in the Old Testament you see he went up in a chariot of fire but yet there are other passages in the Old Testament where the, the, these strange objects which are sort of like a white glowing cloud and of course the ascension of Jesus is also connected with the white glowing cloud as well not to mention a transfiguration I won't put too many ideas into your head there but just, just to open up some possibilities there they seem to fly in formation they split up and join each other they do sort of sky dances they have an undulatory flight they often wobble while they're hovering they often they seem to have no particular obvious method of propulsion they move silently usually sometimes they make a, a whining sound occasionally there's a flame that comes from them but more frequently there's nothing at all they do have this glowing force field around them though that when you see them at night you just see the glow you don't see the metallic structure during the day you're often more likely to see the metallic structure they have all sorts of ele electromagnetic effects on people 
they switch off car motors except for diesels because diesels don't work by electricity but petrol engines do so petrol engines tend to stop in their presence radios black out the static TV interferences compasses are affected electric clocks are stopped and watches are stopped radar is jammed power stations are blacked out as at New York in 1965 the great blackout was accompanied by a lot of UFO sightings Sometimes where they land, the grass is scorched. The roots of the grass are burnt, but not the blades of the grass. This is a thing that is known to be associated with radioactivity um, in experiments done on Earth. And this again and again happens on a UFO. This, that single piece of evidence alone is enough to establish the reality of the phenomenon. The fact that they leave these landing marks, and then when they're inspected, the roots of the grass are burnt and not the blades. I mean, if this was simply a helicopter landing or something, you would not get this sophisticated result of radioactivity. And again and again, that crops up on landing sites all over the world. Let me see. All our aircraft, aircraft frequently chase them, but they're totally outclassed and can't keep up with them. They tend to just fade away without necessarily going away, as if they're sort of dissolving into a higher frequency of matter they often tend to have a sort of fuzzy outline as if some of them may be etheric in nature but there are others that have a hard outline that they come in waves famous waves of UFOs were in France in 1964 England 1967-1979 the greatest wave known yet was between summer of 1965 and summer of 1966 but there were also waves in 1881, 1885, 1905, 1913, 1946 and 1947 they weren't known as flying saucers before 1947 for the reason that I gave before that they were hardly anyone knew about them at all and they were known as either ghost rockets in Sweden or as strange mysterious airships as in 1909 and 1897 <coughs> there are very ancient UFO cases in the reign of Tutmosis III in Egypt in the 2nd century BC the pharaoh's army was suddenly amazed to see numerous circles of fire above them and circling round the army. In 218 BC at Arpi near Rome a shield was seen in the sky and shields were often circular in those days and then again there are many other um, in the ancient east Hindu mythology is frequently mentioned as things that are called vimanas or flying craft um, and even instructions as to how to build one are given and the materials of which they're made as if someone on earth was trying to copy their construction in modern cases you can divide the humanoids into roughly the following list so one person, one author drew up a, a list of the typical types of beings that emerge from these craft and, and it came out as follows Giant men, six, this is out of a sample of 41. Giant men, six. Tall men, nine. Medium-sized men, five. Creatures, two and a half to three and a half foot tall, 12. Hairy, bellicose dwarfs, five. Green-skinned beings, three. And hairy giant, one. So, in other words, the little green men, you only have three out of 41 of them reported as green. In addition, there's a sort of very... Uh, beautiful is the right word they're described as wonderful beings with flowing hair the Adamski type being very spiritual type being sometimes it's said they can't tell whether they're men or women as if they're sort of uh, androgynous you know, they combine the sexes as indeed it's often said that in our own evolution we will eventually again do the Adamski's people were like that and some of the other contactees 
were wonderful, glowing, literally glowing beings of this sort, very telepathic, about human height, usually described as being in a one-piece space suit. They, going back to the craft again, they operate intelligently, they're obviously inquisitive, they're watching us, they're worried about us, their craft have many structural features, portholes, red-white lights, they rotate, they have domes, some of them described as having paddles or propellers or periscopes or landing gear or windows. Dr. Clyde Tombow, the, the uh, astronomer who still claims that he saw one with windows in 1949 and he's the discoverer of planet Pluto. I met somebody the other day who said he still, still challenges this astronomer. Was it really a He still maintains that it was a UFO with windows that he saw. So astronomers do see them and report them, unless there are one or two who want to maintain their status, as I shan't mention any names, who always deny them, but I have some less well-known leaked evidence that even those have in fact seen them but will not admit it. I want to get on more now, as I was saying, to the significance of them, particularly the spiritual significance. So, what are they here for? Where are they from? Well, I believe that the universe was created to have intelligent life and not just to have one in a million or one in a billion planets and all the rest totally sterile, which is the, the standard astronomical belief. Though even that would leave millions of inhabited planets in our galaxy and millions, well, according to Fred Hoyle, even if, if, if you only take a million in our galaxy, he says he reckons that there are a million in intelligently inhabited worlds in our galaxy. Well, that is quite a lot, considering that there are 100,000 million other galaxies <laughs> apart from our own. So you get quite a large number of intelligent worlds. But I personally think that since there are 100,000 million stars in our galaxy, he's only allowing 100,000th of them to be inhabited, which I think is quite contrary to the way our Creator works. I think he created these worlds to have intelligent life, but I think the majority of this intelligent life is not in our dense physical frequency. It's of a higher order of matter which would not be visible to us. It's alright, maybe, um, since another subject I've studied is life after death, when people go to the other side of life here, we can't see them, but we know they exist because they communicate with us. We have very strong evidence of their existence on all these life after life cases. So we have a whole civilization around this world that we can't see. Those who have died can't afford. So why should we have difficulty believing that other planets, like Venus, which is nearly a thousand degrees centigrade, that we couldn't last on for more than a split second without getting frazzled to nothing? Why can't we believe that they have spiritual life? Etheric life of the sort in the afterlife around this planet, or even of a higher frequency still, perhaps. So that's what I believe, and just as being, uh, just as people from who have died from the afterlife world can appear to people and do sometimes to comfort them or in experiments or in seances and things, they do appear, as we know that they do. So these beings from other worlds can appear to us at certain times. They're still extraterrestrial. People will tend to insist on having either or explanations. Either they're spiritual beings or they're from other planets why don't they realize that other planets are for the most part very much more spiritual than this purgatorial one that we're living on at the moment? Um, we, I think, have a particularly difficult 
if you like, karma or set of law of consequences to resolve here in our human race. Uh, we have had what we call the fall of man, however you interpret that. I think other planets probably have not had such a thing as the fall of man on their planet. They probably have not made the same mistakes and they probably live in relative peace and harmony. But they may be very wide when they see this race that's fallen here on Earth actually threatening to tear apart the planet and having hundreds of times the capacity needed to blow the planet literally into nothing, into, it, it literally into dust. And what then happens to the other planets? Don't we realize that if this happened, if there were nuclear on this planet, it would upset the whole equilibrium harmony of the whole solar system? Or the whole solar system is kept in balance by very subtle forces, um, magnetic forces, and we now know that the charges, the, the um, particles from the sun interpenetrate us every second of our lives. Well, what happens then if we send out these terrible waves for resulting from a nuclear war and total destruction of our planet, what would happen to the other planets, the very sensitive spiritual beings that would be receiving all this dreadful negative explosion and all the sudden 4,000 million beings suddenly thrust into the astral worlds in a terrible state of pain and suffering and outrage? What effect do you think that would have on the, the rest of the planet? So you can understand why they're worried and why they started coming in 1947, two years after the first atom bomb was exploded. It makes perfectly good sense to me. I can't see why. That, that was when they first came in any numbers. The cases before 1947 were only very infrequent, isolated ones. But that's when they started coming in large numbers. So that's part of the spiritual significance of it, but I think there's more too. I ought to mention then, at this point, that there are... there's a whole sort of philosophy behind the UFO phenomenon. That is to say, the UFO is not simply a study of cases where people have made sightings, even sightings of humanoid beings. There's a whole literature about people who have made long-term contact with UFO beings and who claim to have got to know them well and to have got whole spiritual philosophies from them either by knowing them in the physical or by getting telepathic or if you like mediumistic communications from them. This really started or was supposed to have started with George Adamski in 1952. In fact it didn't start with him. You can go right back to the origins of great religions um, uh, for example, Muhammad uh, started his religion because he was contacted by the angel, angel Gabriel and Gabriel is said to have come out of a star in the sky I'm told, if you, if you read the Quran though I haven't admittedly read it but I'm told by somebody who has you can check it if you like that this is how he first got his message well, what about the star of Bethlehem? it wasn't a star, we know that conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter doesn't convince me that's what all the astrologers say or something to that effect but that firstly that means putting it back to 7 or 11 BC I can't remember which and also it, it just isn't convincing um, even those two very close together don't look anything like what's described in the Bible and um, it was said to have gone it lit up the sky it was very bright and it stopped over Bethlehem which just a uh, conjunction doesn't do and I think that probably was some kind of craft. Um, and without saying that Jesus himself was purely a man from another planet, I think that 
the angels were, because the Greek word angelos means messenger. One scholar actually translated that as being ambassadors from other universes without realising what he might be opening up to. The angels are a very peculiar race as described in the Bible. They were very physical when they wanted to be after the, wasn't it three of them fought in front of uh, Abraham? Uh, isn't that right, Patrick? Uh, and ate food with him or something. Yeah. Then you have the, the angels that were present in all sorts of other cases, uh, at the, the tomb of Christ, and then at the ascension of Christ, of course, where they said that he would, why worry, he will come back in the same way that he has left. And, of course, to the shepherds and all the rest of it. They're described on many, many occasions in the Bible. It'd be interesting to count out how many. Um, but it's very interesting, you see, the word used to describe not only the angels, but the Lord is a very poor translation of what we call God in the Old Testament. In fact, the word is Elohim, which is a plural word, not a singular one, as you probably know. And when Moses went up Mount Sinai, Firstly, let's say what happened before that. There was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night that led the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness. In 1952, at Oleron and in France, there were two very remarkable UFO sightings. They were cylindrical, not the usual disc shape, but cylindrical type, or tubular shape UFOs. <coughs> and one of them, at least, was vertical, as it was standing vertically in the sky and uh, could therefore be very well described as a pillar. During the day it glowed red. Sorry, at night, during the night it glowed red. During the day it was surrounded by some swirling mist. Now, it's very interesting that you have a modern case which is so close to what led the Hebrews for 40 years. This is described, the full description of it is the glory of Yahweh, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Then it's usually short because they couldn't be bothered to write this out all the time, every time on their very rare parchment. It was so rare that they missed out all the vowels anyway in what they were writing out. And they really couldn't be bothered to write all this out. So they just shortened it to the glory of Yahweh. Which of course is taken by all translators as a purely symbolic, poetic description of a, a nice, hazy sort of feeling of inspiration or something when God was present. But in fact that phrase, the glory of Yahweh, refers precisely and physically to this pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And um, it landed on Mount Sinai. Now the description, you go to the description, you will see that it says it came down, the actual word down is there, onto the mountain. Moses went up there and stayed 40 days and spoke with the Elohim. Now remember that Elohim means the Lords in plural, or the great beings. One translator has given it as meaning the shining ones because apparently it has that connotation which would be very similar to modern contactee cases. He brought down with him the Twelve Commandments, as you probably know. <laughs> he also brought, or he didn't bring with him, but there was given a thing called the Ark of the Covenant which is another very mysterious uh, object because nobody was allowed to touch it and the voice of God, or of the Elohim rather, the Lord's, came out of it. It sounds to me very much like some sort of vehicle with, with some sort of uh, transmitting apparatus which was highly radioactive active and highly dangerous for people to touch. And things like this are reported in modern reports. There are, uh, the beings are often reported as having things on their belts out of which the, the voice comes because they can't speak English but when they want to speak our language it's translated instantaneously by this computer which has a microphone on, on their belt. So there is 
one possibility of a spiritual interpretation that these beings may be responsible for the great religions of the world or for a great many of them and whilst as a Christian I believe that Jesus was an incarnation of God he really was divine and the divinity actually interpenetrated him and he's the only person I personally would believe who fully expressed that nevertheless uh, it could be that he was part of a great operation that was planned from other planets for the divine to incarnate on earth and for great beings like the Elohim who were in fact the crews of his craft to be responsible for this great evangelistic effort to enlighten the planet earth so I, I, it doesn't, in, to me, in any way damage. In fact, it greatly enhances the, uh, my Christian belief. So there's one aspect of the spiritual, the spiritual significance of these. But I would like to now just say a little bit more about that, because I would like to give you the content of what some of these groups say you know I just told you just now that, that some of these um, some of these contactee groups say that a whole philosophy of life and a great deal of information on the current cosmic situation on planet earth is imparted by these beings and there are certain groups that continue even now to receive such information it's usually received telepathically in a few cases it's received still physically from the, the beings, but those cases are more in the 1950s. But I just want to summarize to you the picture that they give. I've given it so far from our point of view as we see them. Now let's put, I'm going to put myself now in their position as if I'm one of them, as if all of us are amongst them, looking down on planet Earth and seeing what is in fact happening. And they see it as something like as follows. There is a, a gigantic program for planet Earth to raise humanity on Earth back to Christ consciousness at the moment going on. The, the cycle of 26,000 years during which the procession of the equinoxes is completed and the whole cycle of the zodiac is gone through, as you probably know this happens, is also nearly complete. We're nearly at the age, end of the age of Fiskes. It doesn't really matter whether you give the astrological names as the zodiac or just call it the procession of the equinoxes. I'm not speaking of this in astrological terms. I don't think that's necessary. But you can say we're at the end of the age of Fiskes and the beginning of the age of Aquarius if you, if you like that sort of terminology, which I don't on the whole. But about the end of this century is the end of this 26,000 year phase. Never before has there been so vast a programme to help planet Earth. Much of it is still experimental. It includes beings from elsewhere in the solar system and also beings from outside our solar system in other systems, which incidentally astronomy is just showing us now do exist because they're beginning to spot planets around other stars for the first time with the new telescopes. Man is not to be allowed to destroy Earth by his nuclear weapons. This would be prevented if he tries a third world war, a nuclear world war is therefore not going to take place Jesus is the, uh, the uh, being who is currently responsible for this phase of earth development and, um, and he represents for earth for the time being the Christ consciousness and therefore all the spirit, spiritual teachings and the spiritual energies have to go through the Christ consciousness 
That is not to say that other great beings, like, say, Krishna, Muhammad, and others, um, may not also have embodied the Christ consciousness and have spoken the truth as they saw it, still activated by that Christ consciousness. It is just to say that Jesus was the only one, according to these teachings, who was completely penetrated by it. But of course he was only able to give very limited teachings because as he told his disciples, there was much that he could, I could tell you, but you can't bear it now, but when the Spirit comes he will lead you into all truth and all the rest of it. Man is to be raised onto a higher frequency vibration. He cannot yet know the details, and it includes the whole of the solar system is to be raised to a higher frequency, and not only the physical planet, but the astral world around the planet, that is to say, including the beings who have died before us. At the moment, we have just ended a period of mass education to set up the networks necessary and to tell people the basic facts about what is going on, and we're now going into a new and more intensive phase in which um, not only will the mass education aspect be stepped up, as it is being, but it will be accompanied by a much higher degree of actual demonstration of Christ's powers. That is to say, there will be people around who will actually be able to use Christ's powers directly for such purposes as healing or being in two or three places at once and so on. Long hidden documents are about to be released which will give further information on the history of man uh, and of his long struggles here on planet Earth. Some of these will be discovered under or right near to the Sphinx and the Great Pyramid. Others may be discovered in Central America. Edgar Cayce also said this. Uh, hidden techniques will also be released, uh, giving simple and accurate and easy methods of spiritual unfoldment to replace some of the more tortuous and difficult methods that have long been put forward by esoteric and semi-secret groups. These esoteric groups, in many cases, have become too exclusive and too secret and too self-satisfied and too complacent, and most of them are now being bypassed by the new teachings. There's a curious spiritual law whereby if you get a certain amount of spiritual knowledge and you try and confine it within to yourself or within your own little group, the source of it dries up because you're not opening it to all. This is one of the faults of the Essenes and it's why Jesus refused to be an Essene because they were too exclusive. They refused to go out to the ordinary people in Palestine. Um, and um, a lot of the groups who we know of, some of them, I won't name them, but you know of them, a lot of well-known esoteric names and groups who are regarded as being the sort of stock uh, truth-givers, will be very surprised indeed to find that they are being bypassed. And in fact, very often, the ordinary man or woman in the street who is humble and willing to accept new truths will find himself getting a lot further along the path than the member of these groups who think they know so much. That's one of the things they say. And uh, one of the things, too, they say, is that there's a great new inspiration going into the Christian churches for the very reason that they... That, that esoteric truth has been kept away from the Christian churches through all these 2,000 years. For that very reason, in a way, many of the Christian congregations are more humble and more willing to accept new truths now. In some cases, that doesn't always apply to the Christian hierarchy, but they do say that they are putting a great deal of energy into a complete new reviving of um, the, the Christian churches and people within Christianity. And that this is at least 
a promising base on which to work because Christianity has penetrated right around the world and because the basic teachings of what Jesus said have survived in what is preached by them. Despite all the overlay and all the ecclesiastical hierarchies and all the dogma, the basic teachings of what Jesus gave are there and are available to any Christian. And if that person is sincere, he can build on it within himself and go within and see the real meanings of these things. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, for example, you can interpret that correctly if you go within and meditate upon it. They are trying to revive and transform the Christian churches. They're also going to release scientific apparatus to release men from some of their bondage here to the material. That is, includes things like radionics, which were actually specifically mentioned by some of these communications. There's going to be increasing cooperation and interchange between the East and the West, and also increasing cooperation between the physical and the astral planes on Earth. That is to say, people will become more aware of the people who have passed before us, the spiritual and, and other beings who have never incarnated on Earth, guidance from the spiritual. And these beings in the, the spirit worlds are also beginning to be enlightened for the first time at what is happening in the interplanetary context. Until very recently, the normal communication from the afterlife would not mention anything about this at all but some of the highest communications now are mentioning it. They are becoming aware of it. Um, there will be different presentations of this plan to different people in different ways. Not everybody can accept truth given straight out like that. You have to put it, you have to package it in the way they can accept. So to a Christian it has been Christian terminology, to a Hindu it probably would talk about vimanas and karma and that sort of thing. You have to put it in the terminology, you have to wrap it up. This is not dishonest or expedient, it is simply putting it in a way that people can comprehend, otherwise it means nothing to them, it's just casting pearls before swine if you put the wrong terminology. So don't go up to a Hindu and talk about Jesus' says, or you can, I mean if you think he's ready for it, but I mean, again, don't go up to a Christian and talk about karma and, and, and uh, uh, the seven rishis or something like that, because it won't be the right approach. <laughs> Uh, the higher self, according to these teachings, is fully in accord with the plan and all of us have given permission, all of our higher selves have given permission to be involved in this plan and it's only our personality selves that are not fully in accord with it. It's also said that all of us have become aware of the revelation of Christ in one incarnation or another, even though a great many in this present moment of history may not have done so in this life, but all have in one life or another become aware of it. It's said that the Earth is the laggard planet of this solar system and it has been a purgatorial planet to which reluctant or recalcitrant souls have been sent in the past <laughs> on a sort of crash commando course, that is to say. Um, but they also point out a very encouraging thing that those who have fallen furthest are also able to rise the highest because they realise the terrible consequences of failing to follow the divine plan and they get a tremendous resolve to do better. After all, don't forget that St. Paul spent the first half of his life you know, persecuting and trying to kill Christians and think what his wonderful energies were after that. So um, that doesn't mean that we can't rise higher than the other planets now if we really make an effort and if we do so, we have far more experience of how to live with and to combat evil than they have because we've been through them the whole mill. The space visitors have been with us for millennia according to these communications. They were rejected in the Atlantean period 
they're not allowed to take over this planet because of the cosmic law that we, everybody must have their free will including a planet it's not true that vast numbers of space beings are living with us permanently in human guise uh, what they say is it's rather difficult for them to appear as humans because of the, the very drastically reduced frequency level that is required it would be rather like us sort of trying to live permanently under water at the bottom of the North Sea or something you'd have to get into a diving suit and it'd be most uncomfortable but they say there are a few beings from some planets including Venus etheric beings that are um, nearer to Earth's frequency and able to live at least for a short period of time as apparent human beings and therefore could be passed off as human beings they uh, say that incidentally the shape of man or two arms, two legs, humanoid shape is a universal design that we're all children of the same creator they all believe in God of course the overall God behind it all they would prefer man to raise himself rather than just to, to uh, take them as saviours they don't want to be regarded as saviours or gods they are our fellow humanity and they're here to help us they're just a little step few little steps further on the path and they admit they may be fallible rather as you see that little nice little piece at the beginning of each Alice Bailey book in which Dwell Cole says I'm just a few steps further on the path and don't accept anything I say as gospel truth they say incidentally apropos of Alice Bailey I'm afraid to say that they say that Shambhala is not in Tibet uh, that Shambhala cannot be placed in any one location on earth it, it is simply a symbolic name for a higher frequency plane of matter and that it's a mistake to try and place, to place this place where the will of God is known in one location on the earth and Alice Bailey made a mistake there uh, other people have made mistakes in trying to place it elsewhere on the earth as well one of the things Stephen Jenkins would have told you had he been here today was that the Mongolian Namas although they said Shambhala had once been here, they said that really we can't place it anywhere on Earth. It's not in a geographical location, not even where they are, which is where we usually place it, out near Mongolia, the Gobi Desert. Um, they say that it is, it is another frequency of matter, it's what you might call the etheric. It, it is, it's universal, it interpenetrates the whole of our physical matter. You can't say Shambhala's in one place. That's one of the many ways in which the esoteric groups have gone wrong, the traditional esoteric groups. The spacecraft are changing the frequency of Earth by increasing its vibratory energy level by charging it as it were there's a, there's a sort of glowing grid system of interlocking lines of force all around the Earth and I could bring in ley lines here but I shan't because it would take too long and they are energizing this they are as it were pumping it with the energies of their higher frequencies so as to lift the frequency of the whole of physical matter on Earth, so that a scientist in future might describe it as being that the atomic structure of matter is being speeded up or something of that sort. Not being a scientist, I can't <coughs> describe it in a scientific way. Um, they say that space beings get through to us not only through UFO sightings and contacts, but through dreams, meditations, and physical appearances, and through our ordinary thoughts. That is to say, if we just think. Oh, if we're thinking about some problem and we the, the thoughts that they send us can join the thoughts that are in our minds and appear to be our own thoughts which of course is the way that people from the other side of life in the afterlife also guide us in that way and our own higher selves it all has to go through our own higher selves so nothing would come to us without being authorised nothing would come to us that we didn't want 
it would only be if it had been authorized by our higher self, of course. They say they can appear and disappear at will, they ha that they have great motherships, which are several miles long, which are out in the atmosphere, that what we see are the scoutcraft or the disks. Um, they have space beams, which can beam into people on Earth, and can actually beam onto their heads if they want to make a telepathic communication. Again, this would only happen with people who had been, who had authorized it to happen to them. That they can, they often use these space beams for healing when people have miraculous healings. This is sometimes they're doing, they say. Um, they, what they are trying to do is to alleviate the predicted catastrophes that people like Edgar Casey have said are going to accompany the second coming and try and prevent the great geological cataclysms that are said to be going to cause, you know, the sinking of half America and sinking of Japan and much of Europe, etc., etc. And to, that, that with the, the techniques that they are using, this is one of the reasons why, very fortunately, the prophecies of Edgar Cayce have not come true about all these cataclysms. A lot of them should have happened by now. Paul Solomon says much the same thing. In fact, he says it even more so. Um, he said, for example, that all the British Isles will be under ice by the year 2000. Well, fortunately, these sort of prophecies are not likely to happen because this is only a potential of what could happen. And they say that all sorts of things can be done to prevent it. And people who make these prophecies are just not aware of the tremendous intelligent energies that are being put into healing the earth all the time and healing people on the earth. So it's rather as if the, somebody sees a person who's chronically sick and makes a prophecy of their death the next day, doesn't realise that they're just about to be rushed into the most sophisticated hospital they're operated on, um, something of that sort. So they can greatly alleviate the catastrophe. They say that the Fatima dancing sun of 1917 that was seen by 70,000 people was in fact a UFO, as is generally thought by ufologists, and that the warnings of the Virgin Mary that accompanied that apparition uh, were in fact designed to warn against firstly the rise of communism, which was one of the things she said, and also the general unleashing of unhealthy and warlike energies on this planet, and a warning of the second coming too, uh, that she couldn't hold her son's hand much longer, one of the phrases used another time in, by Virgin Mary. That these were in fact designed as warnings and not to be taken lightly. Um, the message was supposed to be released in 1960, but when it was opened, because it was given that it would be released then, when it was opened by the Pope and the Cardinals, they refused to release it, probably because it contained a lot of highly uncomplimentary things about the Roman hierarchy, and possibly a prophecy of the breakup of the Roman Church towards the end of this century. Well, in any case, it wasn't released, but when they came out of that meeting, they were extremely long-faced. Then a few years later, Pope John XXIII had an audience with Adamski, uh, not many people know this, and officially it's been denied since then, but uh, in fact it is known that that happened. The, the, the John XXIII knew far more than we generally know he knew, uh, and he did meet Adamski, and he was put in the picture to a large extent. Uh, the frequency changes on the Earth started, according to them, from 1865 and became obvious from 1937, and were accelerated again in 1968. From, from 1987, the frequency of this planet will be so much raised to so much a high level that it will be very difficult for anyone to continue in a purely materialistic frame of mind on this planet. And if they do, if they continue to ignore all spiritual realities after that, 
state, according to the, what they say, they may incur all sorts of inattentions as their higher self keeps on trying to prod them into going to the spiritual. And if they refuse to do so, the inner, inner inharmonies may cause illnesses and problems. And also people who refuse to accept this uh, spiritual program or the spiritual direction of man, when they die on this planet, will not be reincarnated again on this planet. That is the, what they say will happen. There are other planets being prepared for the souls of recalcitrant people who want to continue in a purely materialistic way. There are some nice, thoroughly materialistic planets ready for them. That's where they will have their next life. <laughs> no, this planet's being promoted to a higher, more spiritual level, you see. According to them. Uh, well, they said 1987, but one of the things is you keep on, we keep on getting stuff through saying, oh, well, I'm afraid it's being delayed a bit, and I'd probably say this date will probably go back a little, because in fact a lot of the dates that have been put off, they keep on saying, well, the, the program, is, uh, we haven't reached enough people yet, we have to put it off for a year or two. Uh, that shows that the whole thing is experimental, you see. If, if any of this is true, this is what you would expect, isn't it? They don't really know exactly. They're dealing with, with unpredictable beings, aren't they? Human beings who might go one way or might go another. This is one of the things um, Jenkins' Islamists told him in Mongolia. They said, uh, well, we'd like to believe in a grand scheme like theosophy, but really human beings are far less predictable than that. Theosophy says they go up and, you know, you reach the high stage and then you go on to the next and on to the next. And it's a nice, smooth climb, but it takes millions and millions of years. Um, but in reality, the Lama's told him, uh, uh, people can go straight down, morally and, and spiritually, down to rock bottom in one lifetime, or straight up in one lifetime. It, uh, it, it's much more unpredictable and less exact than is suggested in these grand esoteric systems. It's much more subject to the, the sheer whims of personality. Uh, and though, of course, you can say that, in fact, our personality self is only part of a greater, higher self and so on, and that wouldn't really damage the greater, higher self so much. But even so, this is one of the things they stressed, that there's far more apparent accident in life than is given in, the, in these systems. Now, whether that is real accident in the true sense is another question, but you're dealing with people who have freedom of choice, and we seem to be given more freedom of choice on this planet and almost anywhere else, which is why we've used it so badly. Um, they say that a lot of things are being done by what they call interdimensional communication. That simply means telepathy. And many of these telepathic channels or mediums have been trained before birth. The reason why there are so many channels with people in the astral or the afterlife through spiritualism and so on is to clear up karma resulting from past relationships. Often there are all sorts of odds and ends to be tied up and so you have to have these communications after death in order to, to do this. Uh, not all these communications are good or right but many of them uh, many of them are not high enough to, to impart the higher truths but many of them, some of them are. You have to judge them by their fruits, they say. Uh, this is, a, this is a, ostensibly the space people speaking. But um, they say that not all ascended masters or people who claim in esoteric groups that they are ascended masters really are as such. A lot of them are what they call lower or subconscious infiltrations. 
and often there is a thought form of an original master that separates itself from the real master and sort of floats about repeating some of the things that he said but is not really the essence of that person. This apparently happened to Babaji who was the teacher of Yogananda. There were lots of Babajis around and lots of people locked onto them and most of them only got this sort of degenerate thought form, not the actual Babaji at all. And this is what the space people say, that the amount of sheer delusion being passed off in the spiritual teachings and the holistic movement, they say, is enormous. And nearly all the teachings that are being given out are incorrect in one way or another. Um, and a lot of them go so badly wrong that they can actually drag a person down for a long period. And in fact, they also say that there's nothing more dangerous than something that's partly true but is not completely true. My experience is that this is so, that people have a lot of truth from one source and then they have to believe the whole lot. And so they go very badly wrong later on. So they see us as being in a sort of maelstrom of delusory teachings on this planet and they can actually see these beings that are imparting these teachings and um, seeing the sort of thought forms that they surround themselves with. A lot of these beings that are imparting these teachings from the other I really believe that they are the saviour of the world um, and you know that they are quite sincere in this that they think they're giving a system which is the complete salvation of the world but it's because of the, a sort of law of mental attraction whereby you attract around yourself mentally those things that you want to believe that many of these masters who teach these esoteric students who we hear about through the esoteric school are in fact uh, um, surrounded by a complete world of their own which, owing to this law of attraction, they actually think is objectively the total truth. And so it's not that they're deliberately deluding us and there may be a lot of truth in what they say. They say that Jesus is the only one who actually incarnated as his higher self. That is to say everybody else has only incarnated an aspect, a personality aspect of his higher all of us really belong to a sort of group soul of which we are only one actor, one part of the family. But Jesus, in fact, incarnated the whole of his higher self as one person. This is the only time this has ever happened, which is why he had the complete power of manifestation over matter, uh, which is again the only time this has happened, and the complete power of healing instantaneously, again the only time this has happened. Uh, he was spiritually trained with the Essenes, but he left them because of the reasons I gave earlier, they were too exclusive and wouldn't go out amongst the people for fear of being defiled, which is also the great trouble of the Jew, Jewish race in general, this exclusivity and the reason why they didn't fully carry out the commission that was given to them. That is to say, exclusive not being willing to mix and to spread the truth to everybody else. They say that the, although they, the space people say that the, the, the way forward spiritually is by the direct science and use of direct mental power. They say, all right, to study the occult and the esoteric and get certain systems and mantras and, and um, so on, that can be perhaps right for some people, perhaps they need it, but this is not the real way forward. You don't need to use systems and either white magic systems or anything else of that sort. You need the direct science of mental power. Um, and this is what they call God energy or creative energy or mind power. And there are groups, of course, which do teach this. Unity School of Christianity, Edgar Casey, Science of Mind, 
and in fact some of the space-based groups as well do teach this and I have personally found this to be by far the most effective way and it's not exactly a miraculous way of going about things but it's just a way whenever you want to know something instead of turning to a system you just simply sit down, direct yourself directly to the problem in hand and ask for inspiration on that and then ask for the, the, the energy with which to do it and you'll find that if you're sincere it comes directly. Well there are certain systems which, uh, to advise people how to do this and I've got one or two books I can show people afterwards on this. They say that miracles are the transmutation of physical form and that the coming of the kingdom uh, refers to the new raising of the frequency of this planet, the coming of the kingdom, when Jesus said his kingdom would come on earth. That means that the frequency would be raised to a point where we would be effectively spiritual beings. But not that we would dispense with our physical body, but those who were alive at the time of this so-called second coming of Christ would actually have our physical bodies raised to a higher frequency on the spot at that time. Um, so, um, and Edgar Cayce and Paul Solomon say much the same thing. I think that this is, this is true. Rudolf Steiner's system suggests something of this sort too, that we're going to raise ourselves to a higher etheric level so that we can see Christ. And it is in this sense that the second coming will occur, that we will raise ourselves to his level. And he has never left the planet, of course, and he will also endeavour to reach down to our level and increasingly now people are having visions of Jesus I don't know if you know this but certain of the TV programmes that have been on every man programmes of that sort one or two of them have been devoted to the visions that people have been having of Jesus rather like Paul's Damascus vision in many 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 of them uh, Steiner actually said that this was the, that was the first and there will be many more like this particularly later this century and it seems to be happening as he said it I ought to mention, incidentally, that I think Steiner's teachings are one of the few esoteric systems that does seem to have stood up extremely well um, to all the evidence that I have studied it, and one of the very best. I know it's difficult to understand Steiner because it's written in difficult language, but it's worth the effort if you can uh, eventually do so. And it also seems to be the one that most seems to fit into the general philosophy of these faith teachings that what will happen is that, that what is being aimed at is the second coming in two senses. Firstly, the second coming of our own Christ consciousness, that is to say, of our awareness of ourselves as divine beings. And secondly, the second coming of Christ in the sense that I've just been saying, we would be aware of Jesus again as the being who has the mission of incarnating the Christ spirit on this planet. And he is, if you like, the higher self of the planetary group soul, if you see the whole planet as a group soul of not 4,000 million people, because there are a lot in the afterlife, perhaps 60,000 million, um, and uh, with Jesus as, if you like, the higher self or sort of um, guiding light of this particular soul group assigned to this planet for the time. We have all, one or two other things before I finish, we have all apparently had a preview of this program and before we were born and we have all volunteered for this particular incarnation in this life. This is another thing that Steiner says too incidentally. 
uh, we're all tending to have strange mo mental and emotional and physical experiences. This is because of the raising in frequency. Some people will get symptoms of what appear to be illnesses and diseases, but which will turn out not to be actually those illnesses and diseases because they're caused by imbalances in, in the endocrine glands or other bodily systems which are brought about by the raising in frequency that's occurring at the moment and it will cause certain little apparent worries and pains and things but nothing in fact as serious as it seems unless of course you're thoroughly down and uh, insistent on remaining in purely materialistic way of thought in which case it might be as, as the years go on according to these teachings more and more likely that you will be finished off by some illness uh, because you're going against the current of what's happening. It's, they say that um, there will be no single event, there will be a series of events that happen. There won't be just one world-shattering event. A series of events will happen which will shake the mass subconscious mind in many fields. It's a necessary cleansing, but much of the catastrophic sort can and will be avoided. Um, so, we have then the second coming of Jesus and of the Christ consciousness. It requires our own reawakening by our own efforts so that we can all accept this program. It could have happened at any time since Jesus' first coming, but that's why the early disciples thought it would, but since we weren't ready for it, it never has. The, the reaction in the early, uh, early world to early Christianity was not sufficient to justify it happening and still hasn't been sufficient to the, up to the present. But they did, they did say the gospel would be preached all around the world before the second coming, didn't it? It says that in the, in the Bible. And, and this is, has now, for the first time, happened. Though it not, may not all, all, always have been perfectly preached. Of course, it may have been rather dogmatically preached, but at least it has been preached. Well, the, uh, incidentally, the reference to the elect, the 144,000, we must be careful not to be exclusive about this does not refer to just the, an idea that just a few of us will be saved. The idea of the elect is, is a symbolic number or possibly a minimum number to indicate the number of people who need to be in Christ consciousness before the second coming will be justified in happening, before the general awareness of the Christ will occur planet-wide. Um, and this number, 144,000, I suppose might be a minimum number, it's also said in some teachings that it may refer to the number of our brain cells that <laughs> need to be converted as well within our own brains. I don't know about that one. But not, definitely not, that only that number would be saved. That's quite a ludicrous idea. The aim is to save everybody, to, to raise everybody's consciousness, but that you need a nucleus or spearhead of people to come first. And that's why in movements like ours, one needn't be worried about the fact that we only seem to be reaching a small number of people, because that is all that is needed to be reached to trigger off what then happens. It's a sort of trigger effect. We don't have to do it all ourselves. We just have to do enough to justify them taking action, as it were. Um, they say that many of the people in present Earth incarnations have little or no prior Earth plane involvements. That is to say many of, of us, particularly in the spiritual movements today, and particularly those who are the broadest and widest thinkers, many of those would not have been on this earth before, the previous lives would be on other planets altogether, or maybe not in the physical ever before. The English-speaking peoples, though they're not in any sense suggesting a chosen race idea, but they do say the English-speaking peoples have a very special purpose, Britain and America especially, and this, in forwarding this work, and that is why 
the English has been allowed to go around the world and become the world language as it now has. They, there is a chain of command and that uh, therefore we should not be too rejecting of authority. That is to say, although it's, it's right to think we must think independently, on the other hand, um, there has to be some system and chain of command. What is happening is almost like a giant military operation. It's rather, rather like a sort of D-Day operation. Uh, and not everybody is able to know all the facts. We only know that little bit that we're entitled or ought to know. And the whole can only be known by those in command. Uh, they say there are other beings helping us, angelic beings, who, many, uh, who are not human at all, ever in their incarnations, and they are helping too that the, um, they are the guardians and guides of man and will remain that until man can fully comprehend his own powers. They say that the Christ powers are coming to us as and when we're ready to them. The important thing is to serve spirit only um, and to realize that the Christed person does nothing of him, him or herself but uses the universal creative energy. And when we realize this, the idea of egotism or selfishness will be simply absurd and impossible. I mean, we will realize that it's just uh, an impossible concept that we could, of ourselves, as a personality, do anything. It has to be with spirit. Incidentally, they say that Mary represents spiritually the need for the unconscious mind to be involved in this that is to say for the soul to awaken the Christ consciousness you know in the turning of the water into wine Mary comes and says is the one who requests it and the, um, the water into wine of course refers to the raising of the frequency um, and Jesus then authorizes it and you need to have the unconscious it has to come through the unconscious which is symbolized by Mary according to these teachings and, and that the, the unconscious has to has to first to request the awakening of the Christ consciousness and then the higher self can do that um, there will be many powers Christ powers that will be given to us I think I've given the essence of it they don't regard I think I'd just like to sum up by saying they don't regard the purely literalistic and physical descriptions of the second coming as being correct that is to say they don't think there's going to be literally an Armageddon battle held in Megiddo or anything like that uh, they think that the book of Revelation is a symbolic book of the Bible, not to be taken literally. They regard the Antichrist as those who failed, who refused to accept Christ's power. They don't. This is one difference with Steiner's teaching, where he talks about the fact that, in his view, Ahriman is going to incarnate. Um, this is, does not seem to be shared by these teachings, who say that the Antichrist is those who do not accept Christ's powers. They say that they're saying that time will be shortened for the elect's sake is a reference to the fact that our karma is being rapidly accelerated and that a lot of karma is in fact being put on the shelf. That is to say, being not exactly remitted, uh, but uh, it's being set aside. Those who are involved with this program, the program is so urgent, the considerations of personal karma cannot be allowed to frustrate us. And if somebody is working hard for the program, and his or her karma would normally have prevented him or her from, from being doing this or that, or having this or that truth imparted to them. That is going to be set aside for the sake of the program, and the, and the karmic limitations will be lifted.
in this emergency situation. So the, um, it's not going to be any longer gradual as given by the theosophists. Um, it's not going to be a very gradual climax that, that this is going to be a very rapid. Everything has been accelerated possibly by the fact that we have nuclear weapons and therefore it has become an emergency planet situation. So all the teachings dating before the discovery of nuclear weapons in that sense are out of date that, that, that this emergency situation has occurred. Well, thank you, Nigel, for that brilliant lecture. Uh, and I think that we should now have a cup of tea 